of the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the city of refuge. And sure, it functioned within their government and within the way that they were organized and their civic way that they were organized as a way to make sure that justice is maintained. But it's also about something greater. It's about Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, your life is always about the things that it's about and it's always about something greater too. Your life is about Jesus, about who he is and what he wants to do. And we always need to make sure we think about those bigger things. As with many passages we study in God's Word, the book of Deuteronomy points us to the life Jesus lived here on earth and the freedom and refuge He offers when we accept His gift of grace. Pastor Daniel today reminds us to keep the bigger picture in mind whenever life starts to pull us down, even when we don't know what's coming next. Jesus is there to provide comfort and support and direct us to the greatest conclusion we could imagine. Now here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 19 with part two of his message, Find Refuge. If I know that God's word says that this is what we should do and how we should live, and none of my friends do it, none of the people I know do it, then what am I going to do? And then there's verses like verse nine that really grab your heart. If you keep all these commandments and do them. I love that. Don't just hear them. Don't just memorize them, but actually live them out. Where the rubber meets the road in real life and in real time and in real situations. Notice, when you keep all God's commandments and you do them, notice what happens next. To love the Lord your God. That's what God is really interested in. See, the obedience to the Lord is something that grows out of love in the same way in a relationship between two people. When there is real love, then you do those things that will bring blessings to those people who you love. Like I always use this example. Like if you love, let's say you're married or let's say maybe you're not married, but you're kind of, you're checking someone out and you're digging their chili and everything, you know, and you want to make a good impression. You know what I mean? And they say to you, listen, you know, oh, I just love I just love Mexican food. I mean, Mexican food just, that just makes me so happy. You know, but I'm really not into sushi. You know, I mean, the raw fish thing, it's not really my thing, you know? And it's like, and it's their birthday, and you're like, and you love them, and you're trying to really, really make a great impression. You say, okay, guess what? I love you. It's your birthday. I got you sushi. What does the person think? Well, if you really love me, you know I don't eat sushi, right? I love enchiladas, you know? Enchiladas are what I love. See, when you love somebody... You want to bring them the things that bless them, right? And the reality is obedience in the Bible, it's supposed to stem out of love for God. Like, because God's love is so profound, I'm not going to bring to God with my life the things that God despises, but because of love, I want to walk in his commandments. And that's why the Apostle John says that God's commandments are not burdensome. The reason that burdensome is because when you love somebody, you're going to do all sorts of things that you maybe wouldn't normally do, but you do it because you love them. Does it make sense? Like, I'll give you a great example. My little daughter, Annabelle. My little daughter, Annabelle, is so cute, right? And Annabelle's got this thing. She loves to pick blackberries, 
right? She loves to pick blackberries. Like every time she's like, go pick blackberries, you know? And the thing is, is you know when you're picking blackberries with a two-year-old, right? What it means is that you're picking them and she's eating them, right? I'm not the most delicate person there. So it's like, I'm out there and we have blackberries, like some bushes in the back of our property. And so we're back there and I'm picking them and I'm, I can't get them off the thing quick enough. And she's eating them. She's like, there's a juicy one. There's a juicy one. You know what I mean? And so it's like, and I'm like up there trying to get them and I'm getting all nicked up, right? But like my little Annabelle, she's eating all the blackberries. She's got blackberry juice everywhere, you know? And it's like, I don't care how many times that I get you know, hitting with a thorn. It's like, my little daughter likes eating blackberries. And I'm like, oh, you know, ruining my hands, little girl, you know? (laughs) I love this little person, you know what I mean? And it's like, so I'm going to pick her blackberries. And if my hands get all nicked up, it's like, who cares? I don't lament it. I just love it because I love this little person. And it's supposed to be the same way with the Lord, right? It's like, because God's love is so extravagant, I think that's why Christians don't obey because you haven't allowed yourself to experience the extravagant love of God. Like you go to church enough to feel that you're growing, but not really pressing in enough that you really experience the spirit-driven life. But when you experience the love of God, now all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Whatever God wants. I mean, how can you go wrong with so amazing love, so great a salvation? You know, and so I just want to encourage you because if you love him, you will walk in his ways. And if you love him, you will do the things and live out the reality of Jesus. I don't want to just encourage you to obedience. I want to encourage you to be enraptured in your relationship with the Lord. Because what I'm here to tell you is that the love that we're all searching for, it's a inbred human condition that we're all searching for love. The love that you're looking for will never actually come from your spouse or significant other. It comes from the Lord. And at best, you will get that love through your significant other. See, my wife, Lynn, does not really want my love. She wants God's love. And Lord willing, I am a good vehicle for God's love to reach my wife. But the thing is, is you can't give what you've never experienced. And I believe that if you and I were to allow ourselves to have God enlarge our hearts with his love that is incomprehensible so profoundly, then the obedience stuff just falls right in line. Because all of a sudden you realize, man, I just want to bring God the things that make God smile. Like the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit, the word for grief That grieving, it literally means to shock the Holy Spirit. Like to be like, whoa, the Spirit of God. And when we find ourselves outside of the commands and the ways and the plans of God, the Spirit of God who dwells inside of us as believers is like, whoa. Right? And so we want the love of God, which will drive us to obedience to walk in his ways. And then he's like, listen, if you do that, I'm going to give you all the land that I promised to your forefathers. You have to make more cities of refuge so that everyone's protected because the land is going to be expansive. But notice that in verse 10, in the situations where there is a homicide that happens, but it does not involve premeditation or malice of forethought, that if the 
avenger of blood finds them and kills them, notice it says in verse 10, lest the innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. See, the taking of a life that was innocent because they didn't mean it, now there's murder in the land. And the way that the Lord looks at people and where they live is the fact that the innocent blood that is shed in a land actually defiles the land. Like the whole community is involved in any way that innocent blood is shed in a land. And obviously there's huge implications for that, isn't there? That maybe we don't do these things, but we find ourselves collectively involved in these things and it defiles the land. Now, in verse 11, we get the other side. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. So now, if someone flees to the city of refuge but they actually lied in wait, they had malice of forethought, they were premeditated, then the cities of refuge won't help them. The elders of the city are supposed to deliver that person over to the avenger of blood, and that person's life would be taken. And notice, he says, and this is very shocking almost, verse 13, your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. Wow. So God holds his people accountable for making sure that justice is served. And when the people will not serve justice at this time period and in this way for the children of Israel, it won't go well with them. Because God cares about justice. It's part of his perfections. Now, again, the cities of refuge is absolutely a picture of Jesus. You have to realize that Jesus is our city of refuge. I mean, of course, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and our strength. See, Jesus is our city of refuge because it's in near reach of any needy person. See, if you're here today and you're saying, man, I need help. Jesus is within reach. It's right there for you, you know? And it's all of this is designed so that the cities of refuge are there. Now, what's awesome also is that this Jesus, just like the city of refuge, is open to everyone, not just the Israelite. Remember, we read it in Joshua, and we read it again in Numbers 35, that even a stranger in the land, if this happened, could go to the city of refuge and find safety. What's also interesting is Jesus, like the city of refuge, provides protection, but only within the boundaries of the people of God. We don't often think about that, do we? See, somebody who is outside of Jesus does not receive the protection that Jesus offers. Not because Jesus doesn't want it for them, but they don't want it for themselves because they are not within the boundaries. See, there's only cities of refuge within the boundaries of the people outside. And the cities of refuge function that when someone was in the boundaries of the cities of refuge, there could be no avenger above. But if they were to go out of the city of refuge, then death might happen. In Numbers 35, if you remember, when was 
the person who shed innocent blood was in the vicinity of refuge, when were they allowed to leave? Anybody remember? After the death of the high priest. (laughs) Do you think that that's by chance? Listen. Jesus is the high priest. And the death of the high priest takes the person who is confined to a city and sets them free. Think about that for a second. See, you might think, so why is this in there? No, it's all a picture of the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the city of refuge. And sure, it functioned within their government and within the way that they were organized and their civic way that they were organized as a way to make sure that justice is maintained. But it's also about something greater. It's about Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, your life is always about the things that it's about and it's always about something greater too. Your life is about Jesus, about who he is and what he wants to do. And we always need to make sure we think about those bigger things. Now, in verse 14, look at what it says. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, this is kind of a weird one. It comes out of nowhere. But the idea here is when people start to dispute over the property lines. And what it says here is you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark when you get into your inheritance. He's saying, look, do not be shady with property lines. And so the Bible all through it, the land and the private ownership of the land was given by God in the most equitable distribution possible, right? And so... Moses knew that when the children of Israel went in the land, that there were going to be people who were going to be greedy. And they were going to say, oh, my, you know, my property line's here, my neighbor's landmark is here, and so I'm going to go, I'm going to move it over. Right? I'm going to move it over like a little inch, a little inch. Right? I'm going to move it over a little bit more. So that it, because it's, it's, the idea here is it's the idea that someone's not content with what God has given them. And because of this lack of being contented, now you start to be greedy and you start to manipulate the situation to try and get the thing that isn't yours, but you want. You're coveting your neighbor's stuff. And I think it's super important for us. We have to make sure that our hearts are not covetous and greedy. I think it was Francis of Assisi, the well-known mystic, who said that I've heard thousands of men's confessions in my time, but I have never once heard a man confess the sin of covetousness. And you know what? I've been a pastor for a long time and I've never heard someone say, I'm so covetous. Why? Because we live in a world where our economy is actually driven on covetousness. Right? You always need to get the new thing, the next thing, the better thing. And so we are relentlessly marketed to. And so this idea of never being content with where we are or what we have, we always need newer, faster, greater, bigger, right? And we don't realize what it's doing to our hearts. Now, I'm not saying, like, if you're outgrowing your house, I'm not saying you should just stay in there forever, you know what I mean? But the idea is, are you doing shady things because you're not content with what God has done in your life? And that's the problem. The problem is when covetousness takes root in our heart, we begin to act differently than we ought to. Like, we know where the boundary line is, but we're actually pushing it over, Right? And that's the slow slide into rebellion against God. It begins with, I'm going to just, where's the boundary, right? And I think for some of us, that's the way we do our Christianity today. 
We say, I want to get as close to the sin line as possible without stepping over it. Like, can I go here? Like, am I in? Am I out? You know? And what happens if you do that is that you always end up in a place you're not supposed to be. You know? And so we have to be careful. And this is, we should honor people's personal property. See, once you move their boundary marker, it's the equivalent of stealing their property. And that, of course, is that thou shalt not steal is one of the big ten. So we want to make sure that in every way we're doing everything above board and along the right lines with what God would have for us. Now, we have this last little section here. Look what it says in verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he has committed by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises up against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from amongst you. And verse 20, those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, jurisprudence must have rules for evidence. We know this already because our legal system has grabbed hold of this, right? It says one witness shall not rise against a man, but out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. So just like today in a court of law, if it's one person and there's he said, she said, and no one knows really what to do, but if there's the numerous witnesses who can corroborate the story, that is the weight of evidence to be able to bring some sort of a verdict on what's going on. And that comes in our country right from the word of God, from the way these things were rendered in the life of the children of Israel. Now, what's interesting, in verse 16, we get into this idea of if a false witness rises against any man to testify of any wrongdoing, then this controversy, then the priests will be involved, and they'll stand before the Lord, and they'll give their testimony. And when, if, the, if somebody's found to be a false witness or a, giving a false testimony, then whatever it was that they were trying to get the other person busted for, they'll receive the same penalty. Now, this is very important because we know do not bear false witness is, again, it's breaking the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. But we also have at play here this simple reality that whatever measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if you're trying to get somebody convicted, that's going to be, this is going to be the penalty, but it's not real, then you're going to be subject to that penalty. And Jesus talks about this. He says, don't judge lest you be judged for whatever measure you use it gets measured back to you, right? And we talked about this in our Little Was the New Big series, right? That you set the measure. Whatever the standard that you erect for other people, that's the standard that's going to be set back at you. Now, someone who's thinking about that will say, well, what I'm, I'm not going to give any standards for anybody, right? So that I, my standard's nice and, you know, I didn't have standards for anybody, but you got to realize God still has a standard for us, Right? 
But you have to realize that whatever measure you erect and you place on other people gets measured back to you. And so what I find that when I am in that place where I'm watching something and I'm having my own set of thoughts about it, my own judgments about what's going on, I stop and think, okay, so whatever it is that I am in my heart condemning somebody for, then God is measuring that back against me. And what I find oftentimes is that when I do that, really, I hate when you do my sin. Like we get the most frustrated at the sins that we struggle with, but when we see it in someone else. Because we don't like seeing our own sins mirrored back at us in somebody else. And so in this situation, when there's a false witness, whatever they're trying to put onto somebody else, they're going to receive the judgment for. And I think that this is very, very scary when you think about it. Really, we want our yes to be yes. We want our no to be no. We don't want to be, the idea of bearing false witness is you're not lining up reality with the truth. And the thing is, is that Jesus is the truth, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So we should be true. Our lives should be truth-filled. We shouldn't bear false witness against other people. We shouldn't try and make a situation worse than it really is. But we should be honest and truth-filled. Look what it says in verse 20 and 21. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil amongst you. So really what it's saying here is that if someone bears false witness and now they become culpable for the same thing that they're trying to get someone else in trouble for, that the people who are around there are going to see that and be like, you know, we better not do that. So the idea, it's the deterrent of the punishment. And listen, that is a very real reality, isn't it? If you've gotten a ticket and you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm relate, but like if I get pulled over again, I'm going to lose my license, right? That deterrent of what the potential outcome of getting caught for that thing, that should grab hold of our lives. Our founding pastor says that we sometimes we fail to think consequentially. We fail to think it through. And I think that the Lord invites all of us to take the long view of life. You know that old saying, you only live once, hashtag YOLO? You know, guess what? That's true. Like, you only have one shot to be here. You get one shot to be here, except for if you believe in reincarnation. And I always like to have fun with you, because you're like, oh, so how you doing? You doing so good? You're going to come back as a roach, you know what I mean? I say that stuff, because I'm from Jersey. I do that. I mean it in love, you know what I mean? But it's like, if someone's like, oh, yeah, I'm believing reincarnation. I'm like, well, how's this life going? You know, I start giving you other thing. I'm like, man, you're in trouble, man. You're going to come back as like a mosquito. You can come back as like a Zika bug or something, you know what I mean? It's no bueno for you, man, you know? But the reality is you only live once here. And literally, we need to think about that. Like, what you do every day is very important, you know? And when you realize you only live once, like, this is your only chance to live this day for the glory of God and the blessings of other people. And tomorrow's the only chance. It's like you don't get a dress rehearsal for a day. You have one shot at it. And you only have one shot at this life under heaven. And so I don't know about you, but when I start thinking about that, I want to maximize this life. I want to like, Lord, I want my life to matter. I want to have an impact for the beautiful things, the glorious things of your kingdom. I don't want to play around. We have to remember that. And what happens is when you start to think about things that way, your life starts changing really quick. Jesus is real. We 
only have a short time on this earth. Though it may seem to stretch on for days sometimes, we really can't know when the day we're living is our last. Pastor Daniel reminded us today that we've been blessed with so much in this life. God takes care of us, just as he cared for the people of Israel as they entered the land he'd promised them. We then have the chance to live for him every day for however long we have. Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel Fusco here. I'm the lead pastor of Crossroads Community Church. I love that God invites all of us to be a part of His family, and I wanted to invite you to be a part of my family of faith. In Vancouver, services on Sundays at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 1 p.m., or in Southwest Portland, our service on Sundays at 10 a.m., as well as midweek services Wednesday at 7 p.m. at both campuses. We would love to have you join us, and if you're at a distance, check us out on our internet campus, crossroadslive.tv. I look forward to seeing you soon. Join us again here on Jesus is Real Radio when Pastor Daniel asks if we're living lives that put us on Satan's hit list. Are we following God so closely and so fully that our enemy is out to get us? This won't be an easy way to live, but it will have impact and will make a lasting kingdom difference. As we continue to study the blueprints for life we find in the pages of Deuteronomy, we'll find more ways this can be accomplished. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series called Blueprints. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.